0: Hello and welcome to the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Nicholas Walton and this is the third in a series looking at the impact of the Covid-19 crisis, asking how we can build back better. This is a shortened version of the webinar on the role of international financial institutions. The panellists are Amal Lee Amin, Anthony Nyong, Joachim Levy, Jolie Schwartz and Scott Morris. But first, the global director of WRI's finance center, Leonardo Martinez-Diaz.
1: Developing countries are going to get hit uh, in two different ways. One, of course, is from the virus itself and the measures to contain the virus, which will mean social distancing, uh, and it will mean shutting down businesses uh, and uh, job losses and so on. At the same time, recall that developing countries uh, are often very connected to the engines of the world economy, and they will also see cross-border contagion effects. They they already are seeing commodities prices drop. Those that export commodities are going to suffer losses of income because of that. Uh, Tourism, which is very important for many developing countries is drying up and that will have an impact. Uh, And of course we have seen uh, over $100 billion of capital leave emerging markets uh, and other developing countries uh, as uh, investors look for safety. Uh, All of this is making uh, the fiscal conditions uh, and the ability of developing countries to respond to the crisis uh, even more serious, uh, and it is putting a lot of fiscal pressure and financial pressure uh, on banks, on companies, and on governments. Therefore, it is crucial then that the international community respond to this uh, crisis, uh, and you do so with uh, overwhelming force. Uh, At the front lines, of course, are the multilateral development banks, uh, the national development banks and the International Monetary Fund. Now that we are in, if you will, a full-time uh, a war footing, uh, it is crucial that these institutions deliver quick uh, financing to help uh, deal with the crisis. The multilateral development banks uh, already are doing that. Uh, they have started with phase one, which is the uh, moment where you have to inject uh, quick uh, financing to countries. I would say very broadly, this phase one is about four things. Uh, The first is about uh, ensuring that countries have money for healthcare, testing, for reporting on the COVID uh, spread, and for uh, helping ensure that the hospitals and the emergency services have the resources they need. The second thing uh, we're seeing from the development banks is money for social safety nets, all of those um, systems that help protect the poorest and most vulnerable, to get money to workers who are unemployed, to get food assistance to those who need it. Uh, The third is trade finance. This might be a bit obscure, but it is absolutely crucial. It is essentially the system of credit that allow trade to happen. Uh, And this is very important because, of course, uh, we need to keep the engine of trade moving as best we can. And finally, uh, the MDVs are providing money uh, directly to banks in countries who can then on lend that money to companies, and some banks that have the ability to do so are providing credit directly to small and medium-sized enterprises across developing countries. Phase two will be even larger in terms of financial capital uh, that will be deployed, uh, and it will uh, use a lot of um, so-called policy-based loans. That is to say, uh, loans that can be deployed very quickly, very flexibly, that governments can use directly into their budgets, um, and they can use them to cover a number of uh, public uh, investments and public spending. Uh, I don't want to leave out the national development banks. Uh, These banks tend to have strong relationships with uh, their local communities, uh, local companies, uh, and they will also be part of the front lines of responding to the crisis. I think it's worth mentioning very briefly the International Monetary Fund. It's not, I think, a a main focus of the discussion today, but it is also very much on the front lines. Uh, Their job, as you may know, is to provide immediate finance for governments for what's known as balance of payments relief. Uh, basically, their ability to continue to get uh, the access to dollar funding uh, that allows them to service debt to uh, trade uh, and to keep the economy running. Finally, uh, we are in the middle of a twin crisis. Uh, one is about the pandemic, but the second is about climate change. Climate change has not stopped. Indeed, uh, the impacts continue. Uh, Just two weeks ago, a major typhoon hit specific islands, including Fiji, which are trying to recover from the virus as well. Folks are projecting a more than active Atlantic hurricane season. Uh, So it is possible that climate impacts could exacerbate the pandemic. What will happen to climate finance? The entities, the institutions that I talked about earlier, all of them have been on the front line of the battle against climate change. They have been very important providers of money to fight climate and as a result of this current emergency uh, the question will be how to try to address both to the extent possible and appropriate uh, at the same time we need to look at ways in which there may be ways for example to enhance resilience to the pandemic that will also have co-benefits in terms of climate change the more we can try to create complementary investments and try to address both emergencies the better we're going to be
0: leonardo martinez diaz Next up, Amal Lee Amin, the climate director of CDC Group.
2: These are sort of three main areas that I've been thinking about that I think will be really valuable for the uh, multilateral financial system to uh, help bring forward uh, in this phase two recovery process. First, I think um, the role of uh, nature-based solutions, that's been a topic of um, much discussion the last couple of years. And when we look at, in fact, look at previous crises, even um, in the US when Roosevelt brought people back to work with civil conservation programs, you know, getting people particularly low-skilled, the informal sector, all those migrant workers back into paid work with literally shovel-ready projects, whether it's planting trees, whether it's doing watershed management, whether it's restoring land um, in both rural but also an urban context. A lot of this, I think, will be very consistent with getting those uh, lower skilled workers back into work really quickly and ensuring payment goes into those types of activities. Potentially, the existing cash transfer programmes could be utilised for that, Uh, We saw in back in 2009, actually, the IDB, the World Bank, AFD, provided a number of governments in Latin America with these uh, policy-based loans around climate change to create the uh, climate-related institutional context that were needed. Well, now there's opportunity to go further, Uh, I would say particularly around sustainable infrastructure, because we know that in looking at the recovery, sustainable infrastructure... Uh, has to be part of the growth agenda. So the IDB, with the World Bank, with EBRD and others, on a framework that I believe can be integrated upstream into the institutional context through these policy-based loans, these fast dispersing loans, and finally, my third point is how to really reignite the private sector. And I think for the MDBs, that will likely be through financial institutions, uh, whether public or commercial banks, to uh, help bring forward SMEs in particular. Uh, for organisations such as CDC, we can work more directly through direct equity, uh, through funds, um, and directly with SMEs. And really, I see the opportunities there to create much more modular distributed technologies for the energy sector, relating to storage, smart grids, looking at diagnostics that will be important for healthcare, but also around climate uh, resiliency, as well as other types of uh, investments around a circular economy and really reigniting these strong markets in the developing and emerging countries to really help build back better.
0: Amal Li Amin. Next, Anthony Nyong of the African Development Bank.
3: Before we really start going into recovery, recovery starts from better managing where we are. That's what places us in a good footing to deal with issues of recovery. For us as a continent, I think there is a challenge, a challenge in the sense that COVID-19 just exacerbates an existing inequality, existing high vulnerability. We have five beds in intensive care units per million people in Sub-Saharan Africa compared to what you have in other regions that have up to 4,000 beds. We have five. While others have gone into recovery, we are still there trying to deal with this. So we're not facing coronavirus. We're facing five different shocks at the same time, experiencing a social shock. That first social shock could come from the health issue we are seeing, It could come from the fact that we have not been able to tell the story of coronavirus well or COVID-19. The stigma around it, is huge. It's making people run away. They don't want to receive treatment because people think once you have COVID-19, you're doomed to hell. And so this makes people to stay away from what should not have been a major issue. We talk about cleaning hands. We had the same issues with Ebola. We're coming back again. Wash your hands well. Check the statistics of Africans that have access to water. I'm not even talking about clean water. These are things that still need to be done, and done very urgently. I'm not sure we are managing this crisis properly. We have lessons from climate change that we can look at. Ebola came, and we saw that the best way we could manage Ebola was through disease surveillance, was through strengthening those infrastructure, those institutions. For us in Africa, it is those institutions we established or strengthened that are helping in addressing the issues today. But what do we have? We're setting up recovery rooms, treatment centers in national stadium and other public places. And we're going to pack our tents and leave once we think we've accomplished it, only to reappear again another decade or less, still with the same emergency measures. In climate change, we've been able to establish that of the resources that go to disaster risk management, 88% goes to post disaster management, just palliatives. Only 12% goes to building resilience. And we are seeing that happening here. So for us, we would want to see as much as we can, areas where we can deal with the resilience. We are going into a hurricane season, and I am not sure how we're going to tell those people that will be flooded, how they need to self-quarantine or do things. We should not take our minds off the climate change. We're not talking about it because everyone is concentrating on this. When we are done and we want to go into the recovery, the women who've lost livelihoods, the children, everything, those are the ones that will now be exposed. We could have done something to build resilience.
0: That was Anthony Nyong. Now Joachim Levy of Stanford University.
4: Now looking ahead, what these banks have to do. I think they have to accelerate a movement they already had of including more and more climate as an integral part of their activities, as well as supporting health, including to uh, start the normalization of life. If you want to go from isolation to a more normal life, you have to have all these systems Uh, working, including testing, etc. In a country like Brazil that has a good industrial basis, the thing is how to coordinate and how to ensure they have the resources of doing that. So when you look across all the uh, development banks, some of them work very closely with the international development banks because uh, they own land money that uh, is given by multilaterals. And I think this will be very important because... uh, For some countries, we're going to have problems of balance of payments pretty soon. uh, Yesterday, we saw uh, some institutions saying that uh, probably, especially with the disorganization of international trade, you're pretty soon going to have a trillion dollar problem uh, in uh, all the emerging market economies. Uh, Financing health is the first step to ensure the normalization of the economy, and as you look forward... We have to make an integral part of uh, every action of development banks, international or national, uh, to look at climate, which is the second crisis that we've been talking a lot for the last few years. Uh, But when life is normal, often we don't take the actions that are necessary.
0: Joachim Levy. Now, Jolie Schwartz of the Bank Information Centre.
5: First, the MDBs should keep in mind that even as they respond to this crisis with much-needed urgency, it's still very important to adhere to high standards for managing social and environmental risks associated with their projects and to know where every dollar is going. Uh, MDB projects, as many people know, are not created overnight. There's a lot of planning and design that goes into them, including anticipating and managing any risks that they may pose to people and the environment. Uh, Unfortunately, we've learned in past crises that social and environmental risk management, as well as measures to ensure transparency and accountability of investments, can be a lower priority when there are very real pressures to get money out the door. To be clear, these instruments can be used in really positive ways. Policy-based loans have a lot of potential to enhance national policy and institutional frameworks that can advance an ambitious climate agenda. However, robust environmental and social standards should also be applied to the loans themselves. And without proper risk management, these investments can have really negative consequences and even undermine the response in many ways. The other lesson I just wanna mention is that the MDB's uh, response should not ignore those most at risk from the impacts of the pandemic as well as the economic downturn. People that are already vulnerable because of poverty, environmental degradation, or limited access to healthcare education are likely going to experience the most lasting impacts of the crisis and could be left behind in the recovery. So while there's been some really positive rhetoric from the World Bank so far on the need to reach the most vulnerable in the response, another lesson learned from the 2008 financial crisis that the World Bank's own independent evaluation group has pointed out is that the institution could have more clearly articulated its objectives for addressing the social impacts of the crisis. And so I think all the MDBs should really heed this advice and also make sure that staff have really clear guidance on how to achieve those objectives. Finally, um, just one other thing to mention here, there should be a much stronger effort to integrate climate change in the MDB's response strategy, as others have mentioned. Um, Much more, I think, could have been done in the response to the 2008 financial crisis to lay the groundwork for a strong global recovery that advanced a a resilient low-carbon future. However, as we know, many MDBs still support fossil fuel projects, both directly and indirectly. And we do know, though, that investing in programs that aim to reduce inequality and address existing vulnerabilities will increase resilience to future crises. There are also many parallels between the pandemic crisis and the climate crisis that we face, and some of the efforts to address them as well as their drivers are really intertwined. And the MDB should keep this in mind uh, when designing programs that could respond to both of these crises with the urgency that is required.
0: And that was Jolie Schwartz. Next up, Scott Morris of the Center for Global Development.
6: When it comes to uh, even the poorest countries, so the low-income, low-middle-income countries that are eligible for MDB concessional financing, they have significant debt burdens uh, in terms of debt owed to external creditors, and there's sort of been growing debt risk even before this this pandemic hit. So, in fact, a majority of these low-income countries were already at high risk of debt distress or in debt distress before the shock. All of which strongly suggests that a very large group of these countries are not going to be able to to service their external debt in the months ahead and and certainly in in the years ahead. Even more importantly is is to recognize what is the crisis response imperative right now, which is that these countries need the maximum amount of fiscal space to directly confront the crisis. So this represents one of the trade-offs. Payments they're having to make to external creditors, Uh, is money that's not available to do direct support within their own economies. There's an overriding sort of compelling need there that drives a lot of the rationale for addressing the debt issue. Just in terms of numbers, if we look at this group of countries as a whole, their debt service this year to external creditors is about $40 billion. The how of debt relief. um, This is where it gets very difficult. So this week we have uh, what I viewed as as a very constructive, positive step announced by the G20 finance ministers, uh, which was an agreement among those countries, the G20 countries to uh, implement a standstill on payments owed to them as creditors. So these are the bilateral creditors and certainly the G20 represents uh, the vast uh, majority of these lending activities among governments. So they've agreed uh, to a standstill for approximately an eight month period Uh, in which countries will not have to make payments on interest or principal during that period. Again, I think this is a very good first step um, for a number of reasons. A leading one is is that uh, we have China on board, Uh, China committing to a coordinated action here uh, with a lot of detail to it in terms of exactly how the standstill will go, sort of precise terms for it. So a common term sheet that speaks Sort of a, a way of proceeding that's going to be important as we confront what are going to be a tougher set of negotiations. Uh, namely, we do have to get beyond the debt standstill to our actual debt relief. Meaning, um, there is an inevitability that uh, a large group of these countries are going to need a reduction in debt. You know, the MDBs themselves are a major group of creditors to these countries, and and there is sort of important questions about. Um, Should they be offering debt relief? Um, And what are the trade-offs that 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 entails for them as crisis lenders? And I, I think here it's important, whatever that decision ultimately is, what is most important, particularly as crisis response, is to keep track of what we would call the net flows from MDBs. Are they scaling up their financing support to a degree that ensures that whatever the ongoing payments back to them are, they are much smaller than the new uh, lending and new support they are providing during the crisis. And I think that's the critical measure to keep track
0: of. Scott Morris. Next, the answers to several audience questions. First up, what's the role of international financial institutions in supporting smallholder farmers?
3: For us, we've already gone into what we may consider a recovery mode because, like I mentioned earlier, when this sickness or disease is done, people say they have to go back to their livelihoods. And for us, smallholder agriculture is the, is the mainstay of most of our economies, and we realize how they might be impacted. The African Development Bank has set up two initiatives. The first is the fight COVID-19 social bond that we launched for $3 of us subscribed. Part of that money is going into such processes to build resilience and build livelihoods. We've also set up a COVID-19 rapid response facility that makes money available within five days. A lot of that is not just budget support. Much of it also will go to specific activities. At this point, we are battling desert locusts. Like I've mentioned, you need to take a look and see what's going on there. These are small farmers that are losing their complete farms and livelihoods. So we're still investing in that and ensuring that when they come out of this quarantine or whatever happens, That they still have a livelihood. So the international finance institutions have a role to play.
2: I mean it's a really important area that many of the MDBs are working on. I mean we at CDC are also looking at uh, how to promote more sustainable agro practices. I think you know for the smallholder farmers it's going to be really important that they do have access to the right kind of credit maybe you know concessional lines of credit that may be provided through local banks uh, alongside probably technical assistance to help ensure that the products and the farming practices that farmers are going to move into really can be more climate smart more resilient and that may also um, include looking at the role of nature-based solutions within a resiliency context for example in watershed management um, to make farming areas more resilient to droughts in the future, being able to ensure that resources get down to those farmers, but also that the the, the banking community is also being incentivized to really uh, provide the right types of investments that can help build in resiliency. We talk a lot about resiliency to climate impacts, but I think we probably need to recognize that resiliency. Uh, needs to be across societies and, you know, the interaction between nature and societies and communities is part of the resiliency that we need to see, whether it's health, cleaner air, cleaner water, as well as also resiliency to droughts, to um, hurricanes even. And so I think we probably do need to sort of recognise that resiliency is something that is going to be very consistent with the climate agenda. I think also I mentioned the sort of focus more modular, distributed uh, networks, whether those are uh, in the energy sector, whether it's in uh, even in the farming community, that those also can be more resilient if developed well.
6: Thanks very much, Lee. I'm seeing an interesting trend in the questions, and maybe some of the other panels have noticed it. Um, Anthony Hobley and a couple of others have expressed concern that the climate community and raising climate, maybe raising it at all, will um, upset people, because after all, this is a global health crisis. People are dying, Um, and they urge uh, caution and question how that can be done. I think that that's Something we're trying very hard to do here at WRI and in this discussion, but um, it sort of goes to narrative. I see joaquim has got his, his finger up in response to that.
4: Climate can help directly in two ways in this recovery phase. Okay, In addition to the links to health that Francis Leo mentioned at the beginning, which are very strong. Uh, first, there are many opportunities for low-skill, immediate, local activities, like was mentioned before. But also, uh, our experience is that some of the key things in uh, climate, uh, is starting with energy, are things that are have higher productivity uh, than existing technologies and existing business. Uh, if you do it right, you actually you gain productivity. And this will be extremely important at this phase uh, to recover the the global economy. We are only going to get back after this shock uh, to get employment and so on, even in a very different way uh, if you move to things that uh, uh, are more productive. So you have to take the moment to facilitate the transition rather than to go back because usually, you know that point B is better than point A, but there are hurdles. At this moment in time, when you're moving all the things, you have more degrees of freedom to actually, is a time that you should use some of your resources to help this transition.
1: Well, I think the the main issue now is how do we find solutions that will immediately address the needs of employment of, uh, wage uh, recovery of small business recovery, while at the same time having some co-benefits in climate. I think uh, Amelie and, and Joachim have talked about essentially uh, a major public works uh, program uh, that could help in many countries where you can put people to work right away uh, in a revenue generating and wage generating employment that would also address the nature-based solutions that we've been talking about for years now.
5: I think you know the institutions themselves have mechanisms already in place that can really shed light on where some of this financing is going, um, and they do have strong standards that can be applied to these investments to make sure that they're not ending up financing projects like in fossil fuels and and other things indirectly that serve to undermine the response. But those mechanisms need to be uh, applied with fidelity and they need to be taken very seriously in in times like this. And public accountability is so important. The more transparency around these types of investments, the better that the public is able to track where these are going. We can really see the development impact. We can course correct uh, where things are going wrong, um, if investments are, are ending up in the wrong places. So making sure that we have as much transparency and accountability around these investments is incredibly important. Also, the ability for people in these countries to really participate in these decisions that are impacting their lives and are going to set them on a course for hopefully a low-carbon, resilient future. People need to have the opportunities to engage in the development conversation. And more transparency around these processes and around uh, the investments that are being made can allow people to engage in that conversation and help to influence where the development agenda is going in their countries.
2: You know, we need to recognise this is about delivering now on the SDGs. Climate is the biggest threat to that. And the response to COVID is about uh, creating a more inclusive uh, society that uh, everyone, including future generations, can benefit from. Because I think the path we're on... Um, was not sustainable in any shape or form. But I agree we need to get that narrative right. And really, we already have the SDGs in place. So, you know, perhaps that's where we focus.
1: I just want to close with three uh, hopefully provocative ideas. The first is that we have to win the economic stabilization battle. If we don't do that, we will emerge from this crisis with very badly depleted financial capital as well as political capital to fight uh, the climate war which will follow. So we have to hit this with everything we've got so that we can get back to a semblance of uh, economic stability. Uh, The second is we have to learn more quickly than we ever have. In other words, uh, we've been talking here for the last hour about better ways to do development quickly, how to integrate climate into development bank programming, how to do policy-based lending more effectively. We've been working on these things for years now. And now it's time to put it all to work in a very quick space of time. This is not a time for 50-page papers. Uh, This is time for two-page memos that are concrete, that are innovative, that can be put to work uh, next week and next month. So this is the time when our job collectively uh, is to make sure that these solutions are devised quickly and put in place in in a practical way and to sell them politically, which is going to be crucial. Finally, and this is, uh, I think, a sobering reality, but... The industrialized countries, uh, the largest economies, starting with China, the U.S. and Europe, almost certainly we're going to recover more quickly. There's simply more money, uh, more institutional capacity to do it. The rest of the world will take longer to recover. And that means that in terms of climate ambition, the world will be looking uh, a lot more to those big economies to help us lead the emissions reduction over the coming years. Uh, And so I think that's something that uh, we have to keep in mind as we uh, begin to hopefully control this crisis.
0: And that was Leonardo Martinez-Diaz ending a special podcast on the role of international financial institutions in building back better across the globe following the COVID-19 crisis. You can find the full audiovisual recording from this, including slides, on the events page at wri.org or on our dedicated COVID-19 pages. You'll also find other Build Back Better webinars that we've already held and ones still to come. You can, of course, catch them all on the WRI podcast, available wherever you download yours. I'm Nicholas Walton. Thanks for listening.